Hello friend, I am Manuel Avila and this is Spirituality and Science. Religions and some spiritual creeds share the view that there is a war between good and evil and that the battlefield is us. Politicians profit from this belief and frame the political struggle with the forces of good or evil depending on the point of view from which it is viewed. What is the true origin of this struggle and what does it mean for each of us? I will present my vision based on spirituality and science. There are three great subjects present in all human cultures that equally raise passion, loyalty and fanaticism. Three themes that jointly have caused at the same time some of the greatest advances in our society but also the most dire aberrations and backwardness religion, politics, and sports, the three topics that are said not to be discussed at the table. What do these three subjects have in common that make them so powerful and polarizing? The answer is almost everything. All three subjects leverage uniforms and symbols to attract their supporters, charismatic and articulate leaders who are often attributed supernatural powers, Uh, mass events where the followers congregate to chant, deliver harangues and participate in ceremonies. All three promote legendary rivalries with similar groups, usually originating in the same geographical area, and we could go on finding parallels and similarities. But the most important thing is that religion, politics and sports have in common the sense of transcendence that we talked about in the episode on the science of the spirit. They provide that feeling of being part of something higher and greater than oneself. It is no coincidence, in fact, that Yuval Noah Harari in his book Sapiens said that politics is simply another form of religion where the God they worship is the idea of a nation and some politics ideas, but that equally demands loyalty, devotion, tithes, and sometimes sacrifices or war heroes, as they are referred to in politics. However, there is an additional characteristic component in religion, politics, and sports that make them so prone to violence. The need for an opponent, a contradictor, for these aspects of society to make sense. They must have an enemy must be fought and destroyed, but who ironically is needed so that one's ideas can be contrasted against. From here on, I am no longer going to refer to sports because sports as well as arts and entertainment are at best controlled ways to release our human instinct for partisanship and confrontation. Knowing that the contest is friendly with rules accepted by both parties and the awareness that the rivalry is limited to the spaces in which the confrontations take place make venial in most cases these events. Well, there have been many cases where this awareness is diluted and the fans of some teams attack to each other to death, but let's say that this is the exception and not the norm. Religion and politics, on the other hand, even though equally fictitious cultural systems created by mankind, most people consider them real and serious matters. But worse yet, most people consider that the religion or political party of their choice is the one that holds the truth or the best moral values and therefore that the supporters of the other factions are wrong or worse, 
that they are the representation of evil. Well, this is the main point that I want to address today. Religion and politics constantly tells us that fight their fight is against evil because we are living a war between good and evil. Very often religions and politicians form alliances to defeat that invisible enemy. And we see how presidents and dictators of all ideological colors invoke God. Sometimes the Virgin Mary and other divine beings for their questionable crusades. But what is evil and where does it come from? Like almost all the concepts that we have covered so far, there is no universal consensus on what evil is. It could be said in a general way that evil is the absence of good. Although that leads us to define good, which is just as ambiguous as evil. These concepts vary from culture to culture and from religion to religion, even from person to person. However, it is clear that both good and evil are part of a human behavior spectrum, in which the ends can be clearly identified by almost anyone. But in the middle, many nuances overlap in shades that some may consider good and others sin or evil. I'm highlighting this spectrum as exclusive of human beings because those same actions when observed in other sentient or non-sentient beings are not equally qualified in the same way. It is known that lions, for example, kill their own cubs as a strategy to gain their own hurt or pride, as it's called. Um, and zoologists explain that this phenomenon uh, is a valid resource from a natural selection point of view. But it is not common to hear that lions or their actions are evil, nor are earthquakes, floods, volcanic eruptions, and other natural disasters. In fact, curiously, uh, many religions and cults consider that these events, unfortunate, unfortunate events, are the work of a kind God who punishes the, his disobedient creatures. Those same divinities are also attributed natural events that result in favorable outcomes for the human being. For example, a good harvest and oddly good fishing or the sprout of a water source. Um, from the previous, everything that happens in nature, life and death, is somehow good, but attributable to divinity. And all evil is eminently human. Even if it's caused by the seduction of an evil spirit, uh, it's still a human evil. Let's see then what is good and what is evil. At the end of the spectrum of the good, we can place goodness, which, although very similar, it's not the same as good. Goodness would enclose everything that is indisputably positive, such as protecting life, defending the underdog, seeking justice, practicing fairness, kindness, humility, etc., at the other end, at the evil end, we find pure evil or depravity that is, in an analogous way, um, something that universally would be condemned as negative, such as killing for pleasure, cheating out of selfishness, selfishness um, stealing without need, abusing the less favored, or causing unnecessary suffering, etc. All of these things resonate with most of us, and I think there is no need to find arguments to explain why we classify them this way. Uh, this is why popular cinema and literature have always represented their most famous heroes and villains with these characteristics. 
the unquestionable goodness of Superman against the unquestionable evil of Lex Luthor. The problem is in the middle of the spectrum, in that gray area where actions are neither good or bad for everyone, and where some people see good and some see evil, yet others may say it is neither. Well, this gray area is where most of the human experience happens. Fortunately, most of us will never feel an urge to kill, torture, um, injure, or destroy another human being, but neither will most of us have the opportunity to show true heroism or save lives. On the other hand, yes, we have to decide every day if we crit criticize a neighbor or if we eat beef or tofu instead, or if we give, uh, give in to laziness or eat one dessert too many. Anyway, in these small things is where we find ourselves facing the struggle against temptations. Famously dramatizes the seven deadly sins that St. Thomas Aquinas compiled. It is likely that if I ask you what are the ten commandments of Moses, you will probably hit five or six, but if I instead ask you what are the capital sins, you will probably know them by heart because they are much closer to our daily life. Pride, greed, lust, wrath, gluttony, envy, and sloth. Of course, there are many cultures that don't base their moral on this list from Thomas Aquinas. But typically, they all would censor the same behaviors. Buddhism, for example, only speaks specifically of greed and wrath, but adds ignorance as part of the three poisons that are the root cause of karma. Islam is more general in the way it calls in sin and speaks of sayya katya, which means errors, itada una danp, which means immorality. Um, they also talk about haram, that means transgressions, dulam fuhursu, fasad, evil and depravity, shriek, which is believing another god apart from Allah. The conflict in all these cases is that the definitions of these sins are almost always so vague and ambiguous that there is also a whole spectrum of behaviors that fit in each category, which makes it, uh, uh, you know, makes some things acceptable or even good for some people, but the opposite for others. For example, is pride in oneself or self-love a form of bad pride? Um, how far can I be ambitious in my project without reaching greed? Does lust only exclude relationships between heterosexual spouses? Or what about the LGBTI community? Are they in or, or masturbation or pornography? All those are sins. Would anger be so bad if with it we motivate ourselves to fight against injustice or abuse? Or whatever, what, what even is gluttony? Eating without hunger? Or uh, from what amount of food am I, am I already being glutton? Um, other questions like, does harmless envy exist? And finally, laziness. If I stay in bed all day on a Sunday or if I decide to postpone the task that I could do today until tomorrow, am I falling to this deadly sin? Jews and Muslims have the advantage uh, that their guidebooks specific, specify in much more detail what is pious and what is sinful. With a disadvantage, on the other hand, that their guidebooks were written a couple thousand years ago and therefore do not give many lights on what to do in the face of internet, social networks, 
multilateralism, globalization, space exploration, climate change, psychoactive drugs, etc. Apparently, some Muslims perceive all of these as mostly sinful, but Jews, for example, mostly as a divine gift. And this might be part of the reason why there's such a great ideological gulf between the worldviews of the East, Middle East, and West. The spiritual warfare that each one of us wage on the personal terrain of human behavior has thus for centuries been transferred to battlefields in the outside world where the Hollywood, the Crusades, and more recently the war on drugs on the, or the war against terrorism always invoke the flags of, God, of good and the help of God to defeat the forces of evil. And then religion and politics meet again because religion tell their faithful you must cultivate faith and temperance so as not to fall into the temptation or committing these sins uh, or your soul will be condemned. But at the same time, they tell politicians you must not allow people to commit these sins. You must prohibit this or that or else people will do it without restraint and we will live hell on earth. And if it pertains to the members of another religion, well, they might as well be annihilated just in case. So there's hypocrisy and there's um, manipulation in, in all these beliefs. Now, statistics show that only about 20% of the world's population does not belong to an organized religion um, or are atheists or agnostics. The question then would be how how did we manage being so religious to move more and more towards a secular world where religion no longer has a, a strong influence in most governments as it had just 50 years ago? Well, as it turns out, at the very heart of this conservative religious thinking, there has always existed a progressive libertarian and humanist seed that has opposed to the government of society based on religious precepts. This is There's been always a conservative side of the human spirit and also a libertarian. Does that sound familiar? Well, to me, yes, conservatives and liberals. In the biblical story, God, or the ruler, put Adam and Eve in the center of the Garden of Eden and offered them all the benefits of their system, housing, food, security, health, clothing. Well, clothing did not give them, but he said that He set one condition for them to continue receiving their income and other benefits. They had to obey what was ordered and above all, not to taste the fruit of the tree of knowledge. That is, not to think for themselves. Then the serpent or the adversary shows up and tells Adam and Eve that if they eat the forbidden fruit, that is knowledge, then one day they will be able to become godlike dominating the world, tra traveling into space, manipulating the world, DNA, etc. We already know what happened next. Nietzsche declared God is dead and we are on our way to becoming homo deus, just like Noah had already sentenced. No matter what title or color they give it or the number of political parties they want to set up, the entire spectrum of political ideas is always divided between these two trends. To the left, libertarians, and to the right, religious. Gee, we even got immersed in laterality, left and right. Doesn't that sound like something else that we have previously discussed? Well, yes, left hemisphere and right hemisphere of the brain. But no, 
that as far as this goes because the definition of political left and right has nothing to do with the functions that were erroneously assigned to each hemisphere of the brain in fact left and right humanism and, and really uh, religiosity do have to do with their brain but in another way human brain has evolved from the inside out and the deepest part the brain stem handles vital functions such as breathing and heartbeat around this primitive brain higher mental functions began to develop starting with a small lump that remains in the upper part of the stem called the R complex the R comes from reptile which is the class where this type of brain also uh, has been observed and with whom we share a common ancestor at some point this idea of the brain um, this sorry this area of the brain controls territoriality aggressiveness ritual and hierarchy now around the R complex nature developed the limbic system that is our mammalian brain there very strong emotions arise such as child care and other behaviors that can be observed in all mammals like um, social uh, interaction finally around the limbic system primates developed our cerebral cortex the place where consciousness intuition analysis logic um, language art and science emerged finally and trying not to extend too much this uh, anatomy class one of the areas that have more recently evolved in homo sapiens brain is the frontal lobe this interesting area of the brain handles very complex processes such as meta thinking which is the abstract thinking of things that only exist in our imagination long-term planning for example but let's focus on these two behavior self-control and empathy i mean this modern brain is what allowed us to get out of the wild and build a civilization the frontal lobe allows us to control the emotions that arise from the limbic system temper them to avoid outbursts and impulses that go against our short medium and long-term goals and also gives us the possibility of attributing emotional value to our fellow humans like feeling pain for the pain that another person suffers um, even if it's a stranger or rejoice with their signs of happiness people who have frontal lobe lesions uh, or who have uh, that region of the brain atrophied in some way have been found not to control their impulses and to be prone to psychopathy or engage in sexual behaviors in public without feeling shame uh, things like that the thing is that this modern empathetic and self-controlling brain did not replace but rather coexist with the limbic system and the art complex therefore human beings are animals that experience at the same time an enormous range of mental processes including cognition and social cooperation aside from emotions and animal instincts aggressiveness ritualism territoriality and respect for hierarchy just like reptiles do in other words in our brain this whole spectrum of forces that propel and contains us coexist cooperate and sometimes conflict to each other at the same time we respect authority we react with violence if our territory is invaded we protect our kids we feel part of a herd we feel the urge to procreate 
um, hoard and enjoy pleasure, but also we have the ability to control all of the previous, respecting differences with our peers, joining them to achieve a common goal and selflessly helping a stranger when the time comes to it. One of the most common and erroneous ideas of those who are highly religious is that only fear of punishment or vehement prohibition can ensure that human beings do not become perverted, licentious, and decay into an animal state. Those prohibitionists consider that within us there are forces that, that push us to evil and only willpower together with human or divine law can repress those instincts and allows us and allow us to live a peaceful life. Maybe that was the case for thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years. Perhaps our primate ancestors had to mark their territory and kill the offspring of anyone who challenged their authority to ensure a minimum of coexistence. But science and especially the experience of many human cultures difference to the, the mainstream one, um, show that it is possible for us to live together in peace and collaborate in large groups without the yoke of fear. But we cannot deny who we are, and deep within each one of us, that reptilian instinct lives on and will continue to exist, challenging our libertarian and exploratory nature. That is the true nature of the battle between good and evil. We are afraid of ourselves. There is a part in our brain that tells us that if we do not respect authority, if we are not rentless with ourselves, we're going to descend into an abyss of evil. And there's another part that invites us to explore the world at the same time, to trust our instincts, to discover and create, even if uh, for this we have to break structures and abolish rules. That is why... Khalil Gibran, a very uh, good uh, writer, said in his wonderful book, The Prophet, And what is it but fragments of your own self you would discard that you may become free? If it is an unjust law you would abolish, that law was written with your own hand upon your own forehead. You cannot erase it by burning your law books nor by washing the foreheads of your judges, though you pour the sea upon them. And if it's a despot you would dethrone, see first that his throne erected within you is destroyed. For how can a tyrant rule the free and the proud, but for a tyranny in their own freedom and a shame in their own pride? Spiritual warfare is feeling guilty every time we give in to our natural instincts, love, sex, sensuality, leisure, and yes, sometimes also the desire for destruction and selfishness. All of those emotions of our limbic system are between a rock and a hard place. The cerebral cortex needs these impulses to be able to discover, understand, create, but our our complex has to serve as a fence to maintain a social order, an efficient and safe social structure. When we are children and our brain is forming, we are free for the first and also the last time. Children up to a certain age love at the misfortune of other people and masturbate in public without any shame, but they also hug and love without limits, without worries. They go about carelessly, naked, 
as Adam and Eve did. But then, when poverty arrives, they realize that they are naked. They discover that sex and death exist, and they, be and they begin to feel the need to create their own story, to see the world and to discern good from evil. Thus, they are little by little expelled from the Garden of Eden and have to start f fending for themselves. They understand that dad and mom were not gods in the end, and that causes deep frustration. Hence, the rebellion against deception, rules, and injustice. They need to change the system, and that is why most young people are liberal, challenging, progressive. Idealistic struggles come. Then uh, they shake the foundations of society with their peace and love, student movements, springs of discontent, and suddenly, already immersed in the daily life of making a living and bored with the disappointments and unfulfilled promises of their liberalism and debauchery, they begin to see the consequences of their mistakes and to understand and appreciate what their old parents taught them and told them. The circle is now complete. When now older, those rebels from the past discover that there is a new generation that wants to tear down everything that they built with so much effort, and who knows, they might end up endangering the stability they have achieved for their children. And so, the former rebels now need to preserve as much as possible. That is why almost all the old people are conservatives, even if they call themselves liberals, because the liberals of the past are more like conservatives, conservatives than the liberals of today. And so we have managed to move forward, two steps forward and one step backward. We're finally beginning to understand that there are no human races, but only one human race with various colors, that women have the same value and importance as, as men, that women have the right to decide about their body, and that love between same-sex people is as important and significant as a love between heterosexual couples. Much in spite of the fact that almost all of these precepts are still contested by most of the big, big religions. What will be the struggles of the future? Perhaps the right to choose how and when to die? Polyamory? Genetic engineering? Uh, human and machine relationships? Respect for all forms of life in the earth? Meanwhile, the question is, how do we deal with this war happening within each one of us. I have some ideas to share with you, but that will have to be in another episode. Good journey and nice breeze. <music>